Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Caleb, and I'm on staff here with H2O. And like Joe said, we're going to be continuing our Genesis series today. Uh, I know we only went through two verses last week, but we're not going to just keep doing two verses. I know we'd be here for a few years, at least, if we kept doing that. Um, but we will pick up the pace today and do about 30 verses. Um, so don't worry. We won't be here forever, but you never know. I'm up here, and Joe's giving me the mic, so it might be, might be a while. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the seven-day creation account in Genesis. And so this is probably one of the most widely debated sections of Scripture. There's classic positions of old earth, young earth, and then, you know, sometimes there's sub-positions within that, like special creation of man and different things like that. Um, but we're not going to sit here and hash all these specific uh, uh, theories and all that out today. We don't have time to do that. Again, we'd be here for a very long time. But what we do want to say is that you, if you believe in young earth, we're glad you're here. If you believe in old earth, we are also glad you're here. This isn't a primary issue for us. We are not going to make you believe one or the other to be a member of our church. I think what we, what we require everyone to believe is that God made everything in the world. That is our stance is that you are required to believe that. Um, and I think that's the main point of the uh, creation account in Genesis is that God made everything. Um, and I, th- I just want to say a few things to preface our text for today to help frame our thinking. And number one is I think this uh, narrative is cohesive. The author has a clear step-by-step structure. Um, I don't necessarily think this is poetry. That's not something I'm going to, a hill I'm going to die on or anything. But I, as I look in grammar of the text, I think it's more narrative than poetry. Um, and I don't have time to get into all the reasons for that. Uh, there's multiple reasons I believe that. Um, but number two, this is not a science textbook. Joe touched on this last week. Um, you know, there's no description of fusion reactions in the sun or anything like that in Genesis. Um, so we're not supposed to treat it like it's going to tell us every single detail of how God is doing all these things, you know. The author's not saying, oh, God did this exactly in this specific way. But I think it's more of just to say this is the true God who actually did make everything. And then number three, I think this text can sometimes seem abstract to us because it seems like a list almost, like God did this on day one and this on day two and this on day three. And so sometimes it can feel like uh, repetitive and things like that. But what I want us to really think about is, one, what does this tell us about who God is, what his character is like? And then also, two, what mankind is supposed to be like. So anthropology, if you want to use a fancy word for it. Um, And then also how we are supposed to relate to God as well. So those are kind of the three things we want to look to as we apply this text. So with that being said, let's begin in uh, Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 3, if you want to pull that. That's probably the first page of your Bible there, of actual text. Um, So it it shouldn't be too difficult to find in there, but we're starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and it says this, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So let's just stop there real quick. Um, If we look back to what Joe talked about last week, verse 1 and 2, we see There's verse 1 where it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth, and so that could either be a summary of God creating everything, or it could talk about God creating matter, or different things like that. And then in verse 2, we see that the earth is void and uninhabitable, and then, but we see also, too, that God is hovering over the earth. We see the Spirit of God is hovering over the earth there. So God is there in the barren earth. Um, and then here in verse 3, we see that God is creating day and, or day and night, that there is uh, light and darkness being made. 
So I think the obvious question in our context we're going to ask is, okay, there's no sun and stars yet, so how do we have light? You know, that's kind of something, that's where my mind tends to go. It's like, okay, there's no stars, how is there light, right? Uh, but the simple answer is we don't necessarily know for sure. The author doesn't tell us exactly how this works. Uh, but my speculation would be something similar to Revelation 21, which talks about God uh, and his glory being the light to the nations, that somehow God and his glory is lighting everything. Um, and this might seem strange in our modern context, but I mean, if we believe that God can create something out of nothing, I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that God could do this. Um, with that being said, let's move on to day number two, starting in verse six. It says this, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So in the second day, we see some sort of separation of the water. You know, we talked about the Spirit of God hovering over the earth in verse 2. Um, and I think essentially what we see uh, God doing here is creating like the atmosphere and space and things like that. Um, there's not necessarily a Hebrew word for atmosphere. Uh, they just didn't think in those type of categories as we would today. So we see that there's above the earth and on the surface of the earth. And there's all sorts of wild theories. You can really go down the rabbit trail with a lot of these things. Like some people think that the earth is covered in some sort of cloud over the entire earth. And so that water vapor is creating warmer climates and all this type of stuff, and then the other scientists are like, no, that's not possible, the temperature would be too hot, and you know, you can just keep going and back and forth with these different type of theories. Uh, but again, I think the point is not exactly how did this look, because the author doesn't give us a lot of the details of, the, of this situation, but the fact that God made the heavens and the earth and he separated them, that God is powerful and creative and he can make this separation. So that, let's pick up in day three in verse nine, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and dry land appeared. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So we see God creating dry land and plants on this day. Um, so we're, we're progressing slowly through this creation account here. We see that God is making the earth more habitable as time goes on. So we go from barren, water-covered earth uh, on day one. Now we have day three, and we have land, plants, lightness or light and darkness. So we see God is creating in a specific order with meticulous purpose as he's doing this. So he has a perfect plan and he's carrying it out perfectly. And something that people kind of uh, tend to pick at in the Genesis account of creation is the fact that the plants are created before the sun, and so that doesn't really make sense. And we talked about this a little bit already, but, you know, one, if you take the position of young earth and you say they are literal 24-hour days, plants could live for 24 hours without sunlight, not too crazy to think that they could. Um, and then also, if there is light and that there is God producing some sort of light source, there is light before the sun in this situation, if this, if this order is correct. So let's move on to day four. I know we're kind of powering through here, but we've got a lot to get to. Um, and it says on day four, starting in verse 14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. 
And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. It's hard to say light and night together. And the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. All right, so now we see finally the creation of the sun and the stars. And we now see one of the purposes that God uh, made to separate day and night and to see the different seasons that come about. Um, and in our modern context, we know some of the importance of the separation of day and night. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, circadian rhythms, which is basically your natural tendency to sleep during the night and be awake during the day, um, you know, and if you get off this rhythm, it can really affect your sleep patterns and, and your health as well. Um, so if you've ever worked third shift or anything like that, you know that it can really throw off your patterns and, and that the design of us is to be asleep at night. Um, so we see here God's creation of the sun and separation of light and darkness is important. So he no doubt knew that we would have that natural pattern and designed it in that way. And this doesn't mean you can't try to do the opposite, but we know that it takes a toll on your body, and they say that it can take years off of your life if you do this kind of shift work. It can affect your health drastically. doesn't mean you can't do it, but, you know, we see that God has this plan for how we are to work. So let's move on to day five, starting in verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creature and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarms, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. So on the fifth day we see birds and sea creatures of all kinds are made, and something that's really interesting is we see a blessing here, right? God blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Um, we don't see this with the plants or light and dark, uh, we see, but we see God blessing these living creatures. Um, and we notice that this blessing isn't just some sort of nice words that God speaks over these animals, right? It's, it's a command. He commands them to go be fruitful and multiply. So it's not just some sort of like, oh, these birds are great and these sea creatures are great, but there is purpose in it. Um, so God has created them to go fill the earth and be fruitful. Um, and something important to note about the sea creatures of this time is that the sea was viewed as very volatile and chaotic. And a lot of the cultures around this time viewed, uh, their, their view of creation was one of chaos and that there was a sea monster that gods had to defeat to help create the, the dry land. Um, but this is not what we see here in the Genesis account. We see God in control of creating everything. Um, he didn't have to defeat anything, but there is an orderly fashion to creation. And if God wants to make something happen here in creation, he can make it happen. There's no struggle or back and forth in this creation account. Um, we see one God creating everything with specific purposes, and God controls e even things that seem volatile to us like the sea. So we see God creating with clear structures and rules for his creations, not just for people, but even for the animals. And, and we know that these rules are for their good. We, we notice that the author talks about these as being a blessing, not just some sort of arbitrary rule. But God is putting this in place for the animals' good, not just out of some arbitrary reason. 
So let's finish the rest of our text today, picking up in verse 24 with the last two days. And it says this, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And we'll just finish out in chapter 2 with the first three verses. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blesses the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So that's our text for today. There's quite a bit there that we could talk about. Um, But one thing that we really see here is that God's the only active character so far. Um, You know, we see him making all the action, right? Um, And here are just some of the things we see God doing. We see God speaking, right? That is how he creates, such as in verse 3, God God creates through words. Um, We also notice that God is not relying on anything or anyone else. It's just out of his own power that he creates. He doesn't need anyone or anything else to create. We also see God observing his creation and evaluating it. Right? We see this several times, such as verse 4 and 10 as a couple examples, that, that God is saying that it is good, right? Or even in verse 31, it talks about how God saw all of his creation, and it was very good. So he, he is evaluating it and looking at it. Then also we see God blessing, right? God blesses the living creatures, he blesses mankind, and he also blesses the seventh day. And part of this blessing is, is not, like I said, not just kind words, but it is also responsibility. You know, he makes man his representation on earth. Um, and an interesting note here is like the Hebrew is similar to the word for different idol images in other books of the Bible. And I think the point the author is making is, is not that we are to be worshipped or anything like that, but rather to emphasize the special status in imaging God that we have, um, and that we point to God, not ourselves. That, that is not the end of it, but we are meant to point to God who is greater than us and glorify Him as His stewards. So, we, so what we see is that God is the main character of the story. He's also the first character that we're introduced to, right? If we're reading a story Often the first character we're introduced to is the main character. Not always, but often that is the case. Um, And I think this is what we see in the Bible and the entirety of the canon of Scripture, that God is first, and He is the main character. 
And this is something that we should pay attention to as we read the rest of the Bible, that God is the main character of the story. And the temptation can be often to insert ourselves as the main character or to insert others as main characters. So if there's a bad example, like the, the Pharisees in the New Testament are often a negative example, we might want to put others that we view as uh, self-righteous in there and that they're hypocritical. So that's, that's one of the points of that. But I think one of the things the Pharisees really do show us is how good God is and the grace of him to offer, uh, you know, and have that covenant with Israel. That is, that is one of the things they show. And then the hardness of heart of the Pharisees. Not that we, we can't learn about being hypocritical from the Pharisees, but it also should point us to God, the main character of the story. Um, also, we can tend to look at ourselves as the good characters of Scripture and, and forget that they really should point us to God. So even David, for example, he's a strong leader. He can kill the bad guys who are defying God, right? Um, and he's after God's own heart. You know, David has a lot of positive things going for him. He's the king to which all the other kings of Israel are compared. Um, but a lot of the time that should point us to the goodness and greatness of God, not just who David is, because God put David in this position and he gave him all this. So, so even that we should look and see, oh, God is really doing this because David was the youngest son. He was small. He shouldn't have been in this position, but God put him there. And, and then that really shows us something about God. Not that we can't learn and apply different things about our own lives and others, but we need to remember that God truly is the main character of the entire Bible. Which this brings us to our first point. The creator is above the creation. So the creator is above the creation. Um, we see God's amazing power to create out of nothing um, and that his words have this power to just create. Um, and if we think about it, everything that we make as people is derivative of something else, right? We, we don't really have anything out of nothing, but we see that God can make something out of nothing. Um, so God initiates the making of everything, and he can ordain the proper place uh, for things. And this might seem obvious to us if we've been in the church for a long period of time that, oh, of course, God can tell us what is, the way the world is supposed to work. He can tell us these things. He can give us commands because he's God. Um, but I think functionally in our lives, we might not tend to live that way, right? We, we might have certain areas of our life we don't want to give over to God's command because our sin, our, our desire for our sin is great. Um, and we see Paul talk about this in the New Testament too, that, that he does what he doesn't want to do, that the sin is, is struggle is still there. Um, so, so we struggle with this not wanting to follow God's design for our lives. And, and what we see throughout the rest of the creation account is God not only creating, but giving things specific purposes, right? God makes light and darkness, and then he divides them and creates days and seasons. There's a purpose there. God makes the land which divides the sea and creates plants for, uh, or creates places for the plants and living creatures to live. God makes man to bear his image and, and be his stewards on creation. God has specific purposes for all of his creation. And again, this stands in stark contrast of the surrounding culture of the Hebrews at this time, that the Egyptian and Babylonian creation stories are full of chaos and conflict. You know, the Babylonians had Marduk who had to win uh, dominance over the other gods of their time. Uh, but what we see here is the author is contrasting against that, that, that our God doesn't have to fight to win. He already has dominance and the, the right to tell us how things should work. Um, so we see our God in Genesis creates out of order and peace. Um, in, in our context, I think we might have sometimes a different juxtaposition rather than thinking that 
Um, you know, creation comes from chaos. We might think that. We might struggle with that. But I think in our context in America that we struggle to think that we are our own gods and we can control the order that the, or in the way our life should look and what our reality is. And this can subtly slip into our language. Like, how often do we hear people say, you do you, right? Not, not, not that that's necessarily wrong, but if we think about that, that, that's just saying they can do whatever they want. Or we can hear people saying, follow your truth. Or, uh, you know, just do what makes you happy and not thinking about how God has designed them. But, but we see that God has given us solid ground to stand on. He has told us our purpose in life. So we don't have to live in ambiguity, and we don't have to rely on ourselves to determine our meaning in life. Um, God has given this to us, and it's a good gift. And as creator, he has, the, he has made us his stewards, his image bearers here on earth to represent him. We are to live as he would have for us, to follow his commands. Um, and right here in Genesis 1, we see that God has given a clear plan of, of taking care of God's creation. So this means we need to be good stewards of what God has given us. And, you know, this means we should take care of the earth and plants and animals that God has put on it, right? Uh, but we also don't want to make the opposite mistake of valuing the animals and plants over humanity. We see that mankind is good in God's eyes. Uh, you know, we can't say that having children and population growth is bad because we see the opposite in this passage, that being fruitful and multiplying is a good thing. And it has been popular over the past 60 years or so to say that population growth is bad, whether for economic reasons or different things. Uh, but what available studies and science is showing us right now, that population uh, decrease is more of a problem than population increase, and that especially in Western Europe, this is affecting them a lot. Um, and, and something, too, to note, as we're talking about being fruitful and multiplying, you know, a lot of us might be single and not married, so we might tend to think, oh, that doesn't really apply to me, right? Um, but I think there's so much more to this, this uh, mandate for mankind than just having kids. There's so much more to it than that, right? It's, it's talking also about having dominion and stewarding the earth well. And that's, that's just as much a part of being human as being fruitful and multiplying is. So, so there is something here for us if we're single too than just, you know, being fruitful and multiplying, that we can create culture, we can create systems and structures and, and organize the earth as God would have for us. So in addition to God's command to steward, we also have God's commands for family and sexuality, which he expands on later in chapter 2, which we'll talk about next week. So we see that God made mankind male and female. We see that both sexes are made in the image of God. And this is radical for the time and place that this was written, that men and women are equally imaging God and have inherent dignity and worth. But we also see that God differentiates the two of them, that there are two specific ways to image God. There is a male way and a female way, and, and these are different but equal in bearing God's image. So we also see that the proper place for sexuality and reproduction is in the family unit and marriage. And uh, Jesus uh, alludes to this, this section from the beginning when he's talking about divorce uh, with the Pharisees and different people. He talks about uh, the intentions of marriage. We also see Paul reference the Genesis 1 through 3 several times through his letters, uh, including Romans 1, where he discusses giving up the natural God-given place for sexuality, which is marriage of a man and a woman. And we see that from the beginning of time in Genesis 1, that this is how God meant marriage to be the proper place for sex. And this is not popular in our culture, but we, but we see that God is designing the world to work in a specific way from the very beginning. And this isn't meant to be restrictive or a burden on us. This is meant for our good. Because God, we see that God is creating and, and he's evaluating it and it's good. 
but, but this is to help us live the way that God intends us in the way that we are purposefully made. So we see that the creator is above the creation, and he made it with specific purposes and commands. So this brings us to point number two, God made us in his image. And I've already touched on this a little bit, but I, I really want to flesh this out a little bit more. Um, you might have heard this referred to in theology as the Imago Dei, which just is another way to say the image or likeness of God. Um, and this doctrine really has so many practical implications for how we live our lives. Uh, you know, so we're seeing humanity, all of humanity bears God's image. So this means there's no room for any type of discrimination uh, against different types of people. We are all equal under God's eyes. So, th- so there's no room for any type of racism because God has made us all to represent him on earth. We're all made in his image. Um, and we see in the Old Testament, it's very clear that we are to love others no matter if they're different from us. And perhaps some of us struggle to love people uh, you know, who are of a different political opinion than us. Um, we might have a hard time loving them because we can't understand how they would arrive at this position. Um, but, you know, we should still view them in God's image and because the, they uh, deserve respect and dignity because they're made in God's image. That doesn't mean we can't disagree with people and, and have discussions about politics, but we should always remember that this person's made in God's image. Or maybe we uh, struggle to love people of a different age than us. We could struggle to love people older than us because we feel that the generation above us has been too hard on us and they, they don't understand what it's like to be in our generation. Or maybe we have the opposite struggle where we struggle to love people younger than us because we feel that they have it so easy and they're soft and, and you know that things are just so much easier than when I had to go through it. But whatever the case is, we see that all humanity is in God's image and has inherent dignity, value, and worth. All people represent God's image. And, and don't forget that you yourself are also made in God's image and have inherent worth. Sometimes we have this unhealthy comparison game where we tend to you know, look at other people and then ourselves, and we don't necessarily like the way that God has, us, has made us. But we realize that God has made us with purpose of imaging him, and we have inherent dignity and worth as well. Another part of imaging God is having dominion and stewarding God's creation well. Um, you know, if, we, if we're house-sitting for someone, we would want to take care of the house. We want to take out the trash, keep it clean, cut the grass, do all these things to help keep up the place for whoever we're house-sitting for. Um, you know, this is how we should think about God's creation, too. We don't want to let things, uh, let things go and neglect God's creation. Um, and we see a, a non-example or a bad example uh, of stewardship in the Lord of the Rings. You know, we're two for two on Lord of the Rings references in this series, so we'll see if we can keep that going. Um, but we see Denethor is a steward in the Lord of the Rings, right? He is the steward of Gondor, and he's supposed to act in the king's interests, right? He's supposed to do what the king would do and, and represent him well. But what we see with Denethor is he neglects his kingdom. He says he, he doesn't take care of the defenses that have been destroyed over generations. He doesn't rebuild them. He also does nothing to, to help stop the encroaching enemies, really. Um, so he, he really lets Gondor go to waste, and it's supposed to be the strongest kingdom, but we see it steadily decline throughout his reign. So we don't want to be bad stewards like Denethor. We want to be conscious of the fact that everything is God's. He made everything, so we should take care of what God has given us. This could be our finances, our homes, our time, or our responsibilities, but we should treat everything as if it was God's because it truly is his. 
So the last implication of the image of God that I'll talk about today, there's so much more we could get into, uh, but this is just the last thing for today, is I talked about the terminology of the Hebrew earlier, similar to the idol imagery. Um, but again, this is not to say that we are many gods or, or that we are to be worshipped or anything. The author clearly doesn't believe that as we read the rest of the book. Um, but we see that our point on earth is to glorify God and to worship Him. God's creation is like a temple, and we are supposed to represent Him in His temple. God made us to bring Him glory and honor Him. And we honor Him when we do the things we talked about earlier today. When we are fruitful and multiply, we honor and worship God. When we steward the earth and exercise our dominion properly, we glorify God and represent Him well. So I just want to end with some application questions for us as we go out. So let's really just think about these things, process them, talk about them in your groups or or with other people that are in your group, and then think about how we can live them out because we don't want to just be hearers of God's word. We also want to be doers of God's word as well. Um, So question number one, is there an area of my life where I view myself above God? Is there an area of my life where I view myself above God? This would be an area where uh, we don't submit to God's commands or in his purposes that are good for us. Um, And something I've identified in my life is patience. I I sometimes struggle to be patient. And we see in the New Testament that one of the fruit of the Spirit is to be patient. Um, But I'm not always patient with God and with other people. Um, And this comes from the sense that I know best in my life and I know how things should work. But the reality is God's ways and his timing are higher than my ways and timing, and I need to be patient and trust God and his design and plan for the way things are to work in my life. But we also need to remember, too, that, that in the New Covenant, that, that if there is an area where we're not submitting to God's rule and reign, there is grace for us as well. You know, Romans 8 talks about how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, um, and really, the creation story should give us greater appreciation for the gospel, uh, because the creator who made all things also became a man and died for us, that, that we now have hope that we can be restored into proper relationship with God, how we were meant to be. The good state we see here in Genesis 1, where it's peace, and, and God is saying that it is very good, can, will one day be restored when Christ returns, and that's the hope that we can cling to. So, so as we talk about these next two questions, they're not to condemn us, but remember that we've been made new in the gospel and the hope that we have if we have faith in Jesus. So question number two, is there a, a person or people that I struggle to view as image bearers of God? Is there a person or people that I struggle to view as image bearers of God? And this can be a really hard question for us as we examine our lives, but I think a good way of digging deeper into this is, is there a person in our lives that we tend to have a negative attitude toward just by default, you know? Just interacting with them, we have this kind of negative heart posture towards them. Um, and I'd recommend like starting by, by praying for that person. I noticed that when I pray for someone, it is hard for me to truly have that negative heart posture for me and that, and that God will tend to change my heart through that. But also remember that this includes yourself too, that, that we are also made in God's image. Do we struggle to view ourselves as being made in God's image and have an unhealthy way of viewing ourselves? Uh, but we, re- we need to realize that God has given us purpose and value and worth. And then question number three, am I a good steward of the things that God has given me? Are we stewarding our finances, our time, our responsibilities, and our possessions that God has given us well? Are we treating everything we have been given as if it was made by God's and not our personal property? And, you know, I can struggle with this as well, selfishness and possessiveness. Um, 
You know, I, I like to own things, and, I, and when my neighbors are doing things on my property, it tends to bother me. And yes, they don't have the right to be there necessarily or do the things that they're doing, but most of the time it's no big deal. Um, and I tend to get agitated, but then my wife, Abby, sets me straight, and she says, oh, it's not a big deal, you just need to get over it, which is 100% true, and I just need to get over it. It's, it's a heart thing that's wrong with me. But yes, we, we need to view the things as God's and not necessarily our own. So, so as we go out, I really want to think about these three questions, ask how we can live them out better, and think about is there any sin in our life, but, and then confess that to God and confess that to other people that we're in community with. But also remember that we have grace, that Jesus died for us, that the Creator came down to the creation, and He created a way for us to, to be in right relationship with God and have hope in the future of the gospel. So with that being said, let's pray about God and how He is good and His creation is good. Let's pray. God, we thank You uh, for the goodness of Your creation and, and how the goodness of the gospel that you have bridged the gap that, that we, as we will see in the coming weeks, that, that there is brokenness in the world, but that you created a way to bridge that gap, Lord. And we, and we thank you uh, that you have given us good gifts, Lord. But we pray that as we go out, that we would steward the things that you have given us well, God. Uh, we also ask that, you know, if there's a person in our lives that we are struggling to view as being made in your image, that you would help us to love this person as an image bearer of God. Lord, we also pray that, that we would continue to, to try to seek to, uh, to submit ourselves to your commands, Lord. We know that this can be difficult and that the, the lure of sin sometimes can be great in our lives, but I pray that we would have a greater understanding of your goodness and the goodness of your commands, Lord that we would understand that, that your commands are there for our good and that they're not just trying to restrict us or be arbitrary, God, but that they are there uh, for our good and that you love us and that's why you have given them. So, Lord, we, we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.